Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we concluded with the words of the Abarbanel, the great 15th century Spanish interpreter who claimed that to read the story of David's crime and to not read the story of David's teshuvah is to only read half of the story, which is to say, well, it is the case that David was guilty of a great crime, as the text makes very clear. It is also the case, said the Abarbanel, that his teshuvah was a real and transformative teshuvah, and that is actually the conclusion of the story, and it is through that prism that we have to view the events. I'd like to offer the following from Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, chapter 51, in which David refers specifically to these events. For the leader, a psalm of David, when Natan the prophet came to him after he had come to Bathsheba, and these are David's words, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but just to give us a sense of the confession, of the sincerity, and of the attempt to make amends. Have mercy upon me, O God, as befits your faithfulness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Purify me of my sin, for I recognize my transgressions, and I am ever conscious of my sin. Purge me with hyssop till I am pure. Wash me till I am whiter than snow. Let me hear tidings of joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed exult. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Fashion a pure heart for me, O God. Create in me a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me out of your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Let me again rejoice in your help. Let a vigorous spirit sustain me. I will teach transgressors your ways that sinners may return to you. And with that statement, David proclaims, may my life actually serve as an example to others who also committed crimes, as heinous as they might be, that they could still do tshuva and attempt to make amends for what they had done and achieve some sort of transformation of the spirit. O Lord, open my lips and let my mouth declare your praise to true sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit. God, you will not despise a contrite and crushed heart. And as Abarbanel pointed out, that is as much of the story is as anything else. So we acknowledge the gravity of David's crime, but we also take note of his attempts to do tshuva, we noted, of course, that in response to Natan's indictment and accusation, you are the man, Atahaish, David responded with two words of his own, Chatati Lashem. 
Now, all of this, of course, does not absolve David. The sentence of Natan has been pronounced. The bloodshed will continue throughout his dynasty forever. His own wives will be disgraced by one who will emerge from his household, and it will be done publicly. And we have yet to see how that will play itself out. In the meantime, the child of David and Bathsheba died, and David, it is reported towards the end of chapter 12, comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he lay with her, and she had another child, and his name was called Shilomo, and God loved him. Natan the prophet sends a message that his name is Yedidiah, beloved of God, but Avur Hashem, because such was God's will. So effectively, we have some sort of a resolution in the making. The first child is dead, Uriah is dead, but now, of course, David and Bathsheba have had another child, Shlomo, which speaks to wholeness, Shlemut, and peace, Shalom, Yedidiah, which speaks to being restored to the presence of God and becoming beloved to him. Chapter 12 concludes with the defeat of the Ammonites. Yoav the general, who is still fighting at the front, sends a message to David, and he tells him, come now and complete the conquest of the city, or else the credit will be given to me. And David does so via Esof David, verse number 29 of chapter 12. David gathers all the people and goes to Rabbah, the capital of the Ammonites, and he fights against it and he conquers it. And they take the spoils and they put the people of Rabbah to hard labor. And David and all of the people return to Yerushalayim, and I will add, victorious. So here, as it were, is David reclaiming the mantle of kingship. If chapter 11 introduced David as complacent and relaxed and passive and taking a nap, even as his men fighted the battle, fought the battle, now David is portrayed as the warrior that he is, the leader that he is, and he comes to Rabbah and completes the conquest. And if I knew nothing else about the story, I might have assumed that at the end of chapter 12, we have achieved a perfect resolution. As if to say, the crime was committed, but at the same time, the price was paid, the child died, and David had been restored to God's good graces, and from this point onwards, it's going to be smooth sailing. That's what we might have thought. But in fact, it's going to be anything but from chapter 13 through chapter 20. The story will be taken up with events in David's household, infighting, murder, warfare, bloodshed that will occupy us really until just about the very end of the book. So resolution is only uh, a perception. And in fact, what we're going to discover is now the consequences of David's crime are about to play themselves out very violently. 
the text tells us in chapter 13. David, son of Shalom, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and David's son Amnon loved her. Now this, of course, brings us back to the list of David's lineage back in chapter 3, and there it was reported that David's firstborn was named Amnon, a son to Achinoam from Yisrael. And David had another son by the name of Avshalom from a different wife, whose name was Ma'acha, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. So we have to keep this straight. What that means is that David's sons of Shalom and Amnon are half brothers, and of Shalom has a sister whose name is Tamar. For now, let's assume, as some of the early commentaries did, that Tamar was in fact Amnon's sister, but actually only a half sister, which is to say, when David married of Shalom's mother, Ma'acha, she already had a daughter by the name of Tamar. David subsequently has a child with her, and that is Amnon, his son. Therefore, Amnon and Tamar are half-siblings, but Tamar, sorry, of Shalom and Tamar are half-siblings, but Amnon and Tamar effectively are unrelated. This may be helpful later on in exploring what takes place in the story. For our purposes, what is important to note is the following. Back in chapter 3, Amnon was introduced as David's firstborn. Let us call him, for the purposes of our story here, the crown prince. And the crown prince takes a liking to his quote-unquote sister Tamar, who happens to be his half-brother's sister, his half-brother of Shalom. And Amnon became lovesick. He became ill. Such was his desire for his sister Tamar. He had an advisor by the name of Yonadav, who's actually also a relative. And Yonadav advises him to play sick and to invite Tamar to take care of him, to serve him. It is not clear whether in fact Yonadav's intentions are malicious at this point or if that is simply how the event plays itself out. But sure enough, Amnon feigns illness. When the king comes to visit him, David that is, Amnon says to the king, may my sister Tamar come. May, me, may she prepare some food for me. May I eat it from her hands. And sure enough, David sends her to do so. Why should he suspect anything is amiss? Verse number seven, David sent to Tamar saying, go to the house of Amnon, your brother, and prepare the food for him. And when she does, and the text describes it in excruciating slow motion, as the food is made for Amnon, and eventually Amnon says, let everyone else leave my presence so that I might be alone with her. At that point, he attempts to seduce her. Verse number 11, sleep with me, my sister. She refuses. She attempts to deflect him. She tries her very best 
in order to overcome his impulsive and terrible urges, you will be like one of the scoundrels in Israel, she says. But Amnon refuses to listen. He overpowers her and he rapes her and he sleeps with her, he lies with her, and then he hates her with a greater hatred than the love that he had for her, which of course indicates that he never had love for her at all, but only lust. And as for the hate, obviously it's a projection of his own self-loathing for having committed such a crime. And in the end, he throws her out and locks the door and behaves with complete indifference to her fate. Now that she has been a virgin raped, of course her prospects for the future are absolutely nil. The text reports she was wearing a coat of pasim, a striped coat, let's call it for now, a coat of many colors, and she tore it and she placed ashes upon her head and she placed her hand on her head and cried out as she went. Avshalom, her brother, takes her in, shelters her. And when David hears these things, he was terribly upset. But that's all that is reported. As for Avshalom, he refused to speak to Amnon for bad or for good because he hated Amnon for having raped his sister Tamar. We must note, of course, as Rabbi David Kimchi noted hundreds and hundreds of years ago, this particular series of events, the Radak writes, was a punishment for David concerning the deed of Bathsheba and Uriah. A punishment for that crime was the following that in his household would now take place something sexually improper accompanied by bloodshed. And that's exactly what happens in this story. First Tamar is raped, and then as we shall see, Avshalom will kill Amnon, a sexual crime and murder, a perfect parallel to the story of David and Bathsheba, a sexual crime with her, the murder of Uriah, by the sword of the Ammonites and for the Radak, this is the frame for the chapters that will follow. So we noted Amnon takes an unhealthy lust to his sister who is forbidden to him or his half-sister or a princess whom he should not be raping, whatever the case may be. The sexual urge that Amnon has ought to be overcome but instead it is fed like David with Bathsheba, who should have overcome his impulse, but did not. And in the end, David brought Bathsheba and using his power was able to sleep with her. It's not that much different than what Amnon now did to Tamar, which was to rape her. And note, of course, David's role, unintentional, but central nevertheless, when Amnon asked that Tamar feed him, really asking for David's permission, David agreed and effectively delivered her into his clutches. 
which makes him responsible or at least bearing the guilt of this terrible crime which now takes place. Significantly, I quoted verse number 21, when David heard all these things, he was very upset, but that is the extent of his response. Where is the rebuke to Amnon? Where is the punishment of Amnon? And of course, here we might suggest there is a terrible truth which plays itself out, which is when David commits the crime against Bathsheba and Uriah, he effectively will lose the moral high ground for the rest of his story. How can he now rebuke his son Amnon? Amnon, why did you do that to your sister? Half-sister, the princess. What is Amnon going to respond? Father, you set an excellent example. Isn't that precisely what you did to Bathsheba? So David cannot really rebuke Amnon effectively. He has lost his moral standing. And that perhaps is the greatest tragedy of all, at least insofar as he is concerned. Two years later, the text reports, Avshalom was shearing his sheep in Baal Chatzor to the north in the territory of Ephraim. This is a time for celebration. Avshalom invites David to come. David turns down the invitation. We don't want to overwhelm you, says David. Avshalom now makes a request, can Amnon, my brother, come, presumably to represent you as the crown prince? David is suspicious momentarily, but in the end he relents because Avshalom asks again, and he sent Amnon with him along with all the other princes. In the meantime, Avshalom had turned to his men and he said, when Avshalom is in the midst of the celebration and he is overcome with wine, then you shall strike him down. Do not fear, I have commanded you. Be strong and men of valor. And sure enough, that's what they do. So amazingly, Amnon is murdered by his brother Avshalom Clearly, Avshalom is a charismatic figure. His followers actually commit the crime in spite of the fact that they know they're killing the crown prince. Such is his hold over his followers. When word reaches David, he flies into a fit of mourning. And in the meantime, Avshalom flees to his grandfather, the king of Geshur. Remember, Avshalom's mother is Ma'acha, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. And now Avshalom flees into exile, finding refuge with his grandfather, even as Amnon is now dead. So Amnon gets his just deserts. But once again, we note that it is David who unwittingly delivers Amnon into the clutches of his half-brother of Shalom to be put to death. So effectively, David is responsible for both crimes. He delivered Tamar, and now he delivers Amnon. And in effect, we can see, as I'm sure he does, the words of Nathan the prophet, 
the punishment, the sentence are now playing themselves out with terrible destructiveness. There will not be resolution after all, in spite of David's sincere tshuva. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.